Welcome back to your Master Distiller's favorite podcast and the only one to be aged in new charred oak barrels. Beethoven walks into a bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And today I am especially excited to have by my side not one, but two fabulous guest hosts from our Kansas City Symphony family. We have Assistant Principal Viola Jessica Nance and former guest of the show, Principal Tupa player Joe Lefevre. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. Jessica, since you're the newest addition to the Beethoven Walks Into a Bar family here, I want to give you the honor of teeing up today's guest. Thank you, Mike. You gave me a hard job because uh, this is a long list of accomplishments that I need to include here. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest conductor for the week, Teddy Abrams. Devout listeners of your show may remember that he and Jason Sieber had a terrific conversation a couple of years ago where they discussed uh, how the pandemic and some traumatic events um, in Louisville precipitating a social justice um, movement were combining to push orchestras to reimagine their role in our communities. Teddy's passionate about the power of music to create tangible and meaningful social impact. And for years, both pre and post pandemic, I don't know if we can say post pandemic yet, actually, in any case, he's done that consistently in all of his work. He's become famous for some rather unlikely collaborations and unlikely fusions of different musical styles in his own compositions. He is a conductor, a pianist, clarinetist, and a composer. In 2017, he composed a rap opera about Louisville native Muhammad Ali. Teddy's the current music director of the Louisville Symphony and the Brit Festival in Jacksonville, Oregon. And he was recently named Musical America's Conductor of the Year for 2022. So please welcome to the podcast, Teddy Abrams. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to be back. Yeah, returning guest. Welcome, Teddy. Uh, Our listeners aren't going to hear this until after this week's concerts are over. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that between the planets and Caroline Shaw's The Observatory, this week's program is a little out of this world. Uh, I'm pretty curious to hear uh, about what you have to say about you know the programming that went into this week. It sounds like you may be familiar with uh, Caroline Shaw's pieces before, or maybe even uh, herself, which I'm excited to hear about. Uh, and then I was hoping you could also talk a little bit about Jennifer Coe and, and playing uh, the, the Mazzoli Violin Concerto this week. And it seems like there's quite the theme uh, kind of tying all three between the planets, uh, the observatory and the Mazzoli Concerto, uh, quite a theme tying all of these pieces together. So I was wondering if you could kind of take us through how this program came together and, and how each piece relates to another and, and it's intertwined. Well, there's certainly a, a pretty nice subtext that runs throughout the entire program, which is which is rare because I think a lot of programs end up coming together in a slightly haphazard way, even when the intention is there to have something that unifies the program. In the end, you often get uh, something that resembles your Overture Concerto Symphony form, and then you're left trying to actually invent ways that all the pieces relate to each other but they often don't and that's okay sometimes it's fine to to have a a program that doesn't have a thematic backing uh and and the program can feel very satisfying just on its more uh you know emotional or or stylistic balance but in this case there is a really nice through line uh and that does involve uh our relationship both with the the cosmos um and kind of the musical ability to 
uh, almost create magic and cast spells. And that is very much uh, what Caroline, Missy Mazzoli, and Holst all uh, kind of research and and, uh, and interrogate in their music, which, which I find um, remarkable because they all come up with such different approaches. And there certainly is this very basic kind of sky and space theme that was inspired by the Griffith Observatory and Caroline Shaw's uh, experience there on a particular uh, day in Los Angeles about uh, nine years ago. Uh, and then in Missy Mazzoli's piece, there is literally a, a procession where uh, at the end of the work, she imagines that the violin uh, as kind of like the, the spiritual guide through the piece leads the orchestra into the heavens and like actually um, processes up these, these kind of imaginary stairs uh, off into the clouds. And Holst, of course, being uh most famous for the planets uh has has usually been associated with uh this relationship of uh you know music and space although that wasn't exactly what he was going for uh he was writing a piece about the planets in, in their astrological terms he wasn't really writing about the surface uh and density and atmospheric elements of the planets that he's describing he's really talking about their uh their ability to, to to control the fates and lives of, of human beings and, and what they mean from uh, that kind of, you know, you might call it um, pseudoscientific uh, astrological significance. And, and that is not a thing that I practice in my own life. But uh, if I ever feel like there's some connection, it would be through Holst because he he makes a pretty good case for it. He was a uh, an astrological practitioner, is very interested in, in that um, side of uh of the the astral plane you might say and uh it's it really is uh, amazing to see these three pieces come together especially when you consider the first half of the program is pretty adventurous uh and and daring by a lot of orchestra standards so even in this moment where i think a lot of people are recognizing the need to uh program on a much more uh you know creative and compelling basis and that doesn't mean eliminating old music by any means we can certainly talk about that but but it does mean you're giving a lot of thought to how how, how the balance of programs ultimately plays out so it's really great that, that that's a big part of this this program you know a significant chunk devoted to living composers yeah i think i think the shaw surprised me most this week i didn't really know what to expect and i've really grown to like that piece so um you know again this this is coming out coming out after our our listeners have you know seen the show but i'm really hoping that that's a piece that kind of hits home for a lot of people and, and you mentioned this week in rehearsal the the simple the simplistic nature of it is just shocking sometimes about you know th three notes a core a simple chord can can be a revelation so um yeah i just I, it's a very interesting piece well, Caroline is one of these really rare composers uh, who comes from our world, the so-called classical space. You know, I don't really know if there are great boundaries or definitions for classical anymore. And I may have even talked about that in the last uh, version of the of the podcast that I did. But but whatever, we'll we'll use it now for convenience. Uh, but Caroline comes from our world. She she is a you know incredible um, uh, violinist and violist. She's uh, just a super talented vocalist. Uh, and and she was a you know a, a modern music specialist. She was in the the vocal group Roomful of Teeth when she was writing the piece that that gave her international success and won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and uh, that was her partita. 
which was about, I think it's 16 years old now. It's crazy. It's, it's been a while. Um, but Caroline, as I said, is one of these rare composers who is actually bridging the world of classical music and, and mainstream popular music uh, and is doing it in a very special, authentic way. Um, people who don't really listen to much of what we do uh, have often been compelled on occasion by certain composers. There are pieces that break through. Um, of course, Gershwin and Bernstein Einstein uh, and Copeland are key examples of that. Then you get kind of, um, you know, unusual ones like the Goretzky Third Symphony and that that famous recording that was made, which became, you know, a real actual chart topping record outside of the classical world. And and Caroline's music does the same thing, uh, especially uh, Partita, but but equally so with um, a piece like Entract uh, that, that was written for string quartet. And uh, I, I went to a festival last year called the Big Ears Festival, which is kind of a celebration of uh, a, a range of really interesting creative artists, including classical composers, but also jazz artists, um, electronic music artists, lots of different styles if they're doing something cutting edge and cool they're probably going to end up at big years which is in knoxville tennessee and i went to see the performance of the ataka quartet who won you know the grammy for uh best uh, uh solo instrumental or whatever it was chamber music record whatever it was it was the one that had caroline's music it's a record called orange and the line out the door to get into this this concert was so long there, there was still a line wrapped around the block after the concert started which is waiting for people to leave you know mid set so that, that a couple more folks could get there it, it was like a rock concert except the audience was dead silent because everybody had heard that record and everybody knew it so thoroughly they wanted to hear every second of of that performance they wanted to hear on track it was like it was like the world's quietest rock concert but it had that same vibe like people were so stoked to be there they were sitting on the edge of their chairs listening to the string quartet playing a living composer's piece and that that's there's something about this language that she's found which is unique it's original it doesn't sound like anybody else but she's working with the same tonal system triads melodies big blocks of of, of harmony that the you know it feels both emotional and real and and passionate um but it also doesn't ever feel trite and and silly and so many other composers right in, in at least a similar fashion and it just sounds like cheap uh or or kind of movie-ish music it doesn't sound nuanced and and developed and hers is the opposite of that it just is it's pretty transcendent music and and this is a great example so um we were actually fortunate enough to uh, have caroline as a guest on this podcast uh quite a while ago and uh, she and I actually were were classmates at Rice, and one of the things that I find most extraordinary about her is that when I knew her, I didn't know, and most people didn't know because she she talked about this. She actually sort of kept it a bit of a secret that she uh, composed. We all we all knew her as a violinist, and so when we were playing uh, her piece, The Observatory, there are, there are a few uh, quotations in it, and instantly when I hear when I hear the the moment from the the first page of of Don Juan, I just think it it triggers something for me in in my memory of her being an incredibly diligent violin student and you know practicing excerpts and I and I just think oh that must kind of trigger something special for her too. Um, so so knowing her and and uh, listening to the piece in that way, it, I hear that part of her in it in a in a really special way and it's um, pe people should go back and listen to that episode. Actually, it's really really fascinating for her to tell her story about about, um, you know, how she got 
uh, into composition and and sort of the the angst and the the stress in that period of her life when she was she was literally doing it you know more or less in secret um, and she's obviously so talented and had um, such an incredible career but but I want to if I may um, change tax a little bit because Teddy the last time uh, you were here you talked um, a whole lot about music and uh, interesting collaborations uh, and things that were going on during the pandemic. And we'll, we'll get back to following up on some of those things, but you and Jason didn't actually talk a whole lot about yourself. And um, you and I have known each other for a long, long time. And for our listeners who do not follow uh, Teddy's career closely, and, and by the way, you should, Teddy um, from uh, a very early age, showed incredible talent as a composer, as a clarinetist, a pianist, uh, a conductor. And my first memories of Teddy, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you to share this, um, I, we're probably not that different in age, actually, but uh, it was at a point in time when I was just, uh, you know, kind of coming through college and moving on to my time at New World. And you, I believe, were a teenager at the time, and I saw you get up on the podium and and conduct. And as you stepped up there, I just thought, oh, who is this Who is this young person that's going to conduct us? And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, this person, you know, can lead an orchestra. It was really, it was really extraordinary. So talk a little bit, if you would, about, about your young life and how you came to pursue each of these different aspects of music uh, so, so passionately and so deeply. Yeah. And I, I, I remember that because it was, it was striking. Actually, it, it didn't feel as weird than as I actually now understand it to be, um, and I'll tell I'll tell you why. So I I, I had an interesting uh, path into conducting because I wanted to do this quite specifically from a very early age. This was my dream job, um, the way kids want to be, you know, an astronaut or president of the United States or a firefighter or whatever it is. Like when they're eight or nine years old, uh, this was the thing that I do and is the only thing i wanted to do and i remember the the very specific moment when i figured that out and i was nine years old having been playing the clarinet and the piano for for some time actually the, the clarinet i started in in elementary school bands we were fortunate enough to have one that, that that began actually when i was entering third grade it was the first time the school had one and uh clarinet um you know was something i loved playing it felt natural and my my uh my parents said well uh we should take him to go see a professional orchestra because it was not something that we really did in my family uh, not not that we we didn't come from a you know a, a, a classic eastern european jewish intellectual family but we didn't go to the orchestra all the time that wasn't really part of the the schedule and i went to a san francisco symphony concert when i was nine there's a free outdoor concert to test the waters and i had never seen a professional ensemble of any kind like that uh, we didn't have field trips to the symphony from from my school um and i remember seeing this this performance it was all gershwin uh and within the first five seconds i said to myself i want to be a conductor that's what I want to do. I want to do what the conductor is doing. And I, you know, found out um, that the person who was conducting that show was the music director of the San Francisco Symphony, Michael Tilson Thomas. And so I wrote him a letter. Uh, again, so I was nine. So this is you know, probably an unusual thing. It was a very, very long letter, um, like 10 pages long. I went on and on and on and on and on about all my musical gloves. And at the time, I was, uh, you know, I was 
a little bit of an isolated kid. I think probably many people who eventually find them find their way into this profession have similar stories of, you know, feeling uh, like it was hard to connect with other people, especially when you were that passionate about music at, at some point in your lives, whether it was then or later. But I, I really had probably too much of a personal relationship with the music that I was was playing like I felt like like the composers and the and and the the you know the music itself was like that was my tether to most people I didn't I didn't relate to folks my own age that well and when I wanted to to be a conductor I was like I'm going to take all steps necessary to make this happen. That's why I wrote that letter. And I was very forthcoming and I'm not like this in real life. I don't go up and talk to people randomly. I don't, I don't seek out these, this kind of, this kind of interaction. I certainly don't stalk celebrities, but I, uh, uh, I asked Michael Tilson Thomas for conducting lessons and quite insistently, um, for a nine-year-old. But anyway, he wrote me back, uh, a week later and it's the most, um, affirming, positive and supportive letter that he possibly could have come up with. Uh, I keep it framed in my bedroom so that when I wake up in the morning, I say, this person took the time. He did not have to do this. He did not have to write anything. He could have ignored, uh, uh, you know, some nine-year-old's very um, uh, florid fan letter. Like this could have been an easy thing to, or just write back up, you know, a, a quick response. Instead, he took the time to tell me, yes, you can do this thing if you want to. And here are some ways to make it happen. Uh, and a couple of years later, there's a very, very long yada 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 style story in between but there's no there's no time for that and and some of it's you know it'll be for my, my memoirs one day which nobody will read but whatever um the, there's a there's a long story in there but eventually when i was 11 years old i started playing in the san francisco symphony youth orchestra that's the youth orchestra's part of the san francisco symphony and I ended up connecting with MTT because I was having a bit of a crisis in my my music education at the, at the time. And the music director of the youth orchestra said, hey, you got to take this to, to Michael. He'll know what to do. And so I was 11 um, and met with him and started working with him on a regular basis. And he brought me out to the New World Symphony a couple years later, as 13 or 14, the first time I conducted, to, to work with them on a regular basis. And I mean, I know how weird it is, New World Symphony being, you know, America's great training orchestra but but the, the people people in it are you know um in their mid 20s to, to what early 30s or something and there's this kid who walks out and the first thing i do is conduct the uh Brahms academic festival overture i know how weird that must have been i mean i really looked like a little kid all pudgy you know baby fat still there and i, I look at myself if I have some pictures from that day and just think what a what a miraculous opportunity. It's just you know, it speaks to to MTT's unbelievable generosity and and vision. And I can safely say that I would not be here today, wouldn't be working with this wonderful orchestra this week. Um, if Michael hadn't said, Yes, you can do this. Yes, I believe that 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 um, you know, if this is your passion you can achieve these dreams. So that's how I eventually found my 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 path into conducting. But I've wanted to do it since since that moment I saw a conductor for the very first time. It was the it was the um absolute passion and, and dream of mine. I try and remember that too, uh, because it is easy with the with the flow of the industry and the and the challenges of building a quote unquote career. Sometimes you kind of lose a little bit of sight of that that initial pure 
like a kind of innocent passion for 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 this thing and i try and always just remember that i was i was smiling yesterday before the rehearsal when, when everybody was tuning because i had a i had a little moment I was like geez like how cool is it i'm sitting here like as this this remarkable orchestra is tuning up and we're gonna play the planets for the next two two hours like what really this is what i wanted to do my whole life i had this little moment i was just smiling myself thinking like they this is this is the thing that I told myself, and when I was nine, I was going to get to do it. I would have just absolutely lost it. Love, love that story about the letter from MTT. Because isn't that the thing that really makes a difference in the world? Is when somebody takes the time for a child. That's amazing. It's a great story. It 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 really is. My my dad talks about this too. A lot of my interests in community engagement and and in uh, community work in general um, stem from the the way my dad in particular really raised me um and he always talked about extending yourself and and I, what he meant by that was was when you have the opportunity to do something that, that might alter whatever it might not be a life it might just be a day for somebody but right. you take that opportunity especially as musicians where we're like we're called to and and you know kind of compelled to do that like that's what we're in the business of doing we're trying to change at least people's hours if not their their days or their their lives uh and and i feel like mtt embodied that in that action of saying this person who you know i don't need to to go this far but he extended himself and, and look at the consequences i i am living proof of of what that can do um but most of the time i think as musicians we don't know the end results of what we do you know every once in a while we'll hear some person who had a terminal illness came to our concert and it like it was the first time they they smiled or the first time they laughed or, or they're dealing with dementia and hadn't like acknowledged anything for for weeks we'll get a story like that but most of the time you know we look out at a city of 1600 people or 1800 people whatever it is in kansas city thank god not 3000 people like other halls but but you've got you know you're you're 1800 people and you don't know where all that musical energy goes there isn't a survey that comes back and says, here's how it affected me. You just hope and you send it out there. You just hope that it, that, that resonance is felt. So you started to talk about this and it's, it's almost as if uh, you have my notes in front of you. Um, I, I would, I would love for you to talk more about some of your work uh, specifically in, in Louisville, but I assume wherever you go, um, whatever community you happen to be in, because, you know, you've made a real presence for yourself uh, in, or I should say, you've become a real presence uh, in in Louisville uh, in a very positive way um, for the community and certainly for the orchestra too. And I think that's that's so important as a music director. It's important as a musician in general um, to have that sense of of service uh, through music. And and I think there's so many different ways that that one can accomplish that. But I'd I'd love for you to talk about that as well because you, the way you do that is so creative. I think and so collaborative. Yeah, I, I really see the music director of the orchestra as ideally one of a city's civic leaders, you know, and, and I don't mean uh, in the limited sense of, of the work that you do on the podium. Um, that's that's part of a much broader role that that person could have in a city. I'm not saying it's it's demanded or required. And in many places, it's, it might not even be expected or encouraged. But I've always thought that in a city that it has kind of a few default um 
de facto leaders in in different capacities, right? You're going to have your mayor, of course. You're going to have probably your university president or the coach of the major teams. Uh, you, you think that the music director of the local orchestra should have that kind of presence as a um, as a person that that people look to for for leadership and and to represent their city both locally and internationally. And I I've seen. I mean, that's always been the default understanding for me that that's that's my assumption about what this job would be, because why would you be music director of that orchestra um, and not want to spend any time in the city? I don't get it. Um, most of the, the, the music directors uh, of, of orchestras just don't seem to want to have very much to do with the actual towns where they conduct. And, you know, I, I've. I used to be a little more guarded with my language and now I mean I'm I'm old now so what what do I have to what do I have to lose I think it's just ridiculous I think it's ridiculous it's insulting it's insulting to these cities to to have um you know that kind of absentee leadership um I re I really feel this is this is important uh, you're you're hiring a person to have a presence in the community and there there are things that you can only really do by by knowing the community um and and it doesn't mean there's one way to do it I'm not saying the way that I've I've set up my life is is the right way or the only way by any means but you 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 have to care about the people for whom you're making music you also have to care about the orchestra itself and I, I feel there, there are certain relationships that can be built by by being present there but but in the end you know we we live to serve our communities and i know people say that all the time but what does that mean what does that mean uh and i actually see the orchestra as as a public service institution like it takes the name of the city in its own name it's the kansas city symphony it's the louisville orchestra because we're supposed to create music or create cultural experiences or create a kind of energy for the people of these towns and I find that to to make music for people, you have to know them. Uh, I, I really think that, that that with all the great you know opportunities we have to connect, uh, you know, virtually and and even just in in the space of of compelling people with repertoire, in the end, the idea of going to see Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, the idea of of building a fan base on Twitter pales compared to. If you go and you speak to somebody and you talk to them about why a concert matters, why you care about this concert and you invite them to be a part of that experience, that person's connection is infinitely uh, uh, more powerful and more long lasting than anything else that can be done. Anything media wise, uh, anything in terms of some vague sense of like the importance of an individual piece or a composer, any of that stuff is it pales in comparison to what you could do to individually connect. And like a politician trying to build, you know, a, a compelling campaign, you have to get out on the road, talk to people, meet them, shake hands, make music for them and, and talk about what, what you believe in. And I really feel that that is, is um, the, the, the right way to build uh a, a genuine audience and all those people will have different relationships with with your organization there will be the, the 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 people that want to come downtown to your hall there'll be the people that want to see the free things on a regular basis if you can provide it there'll be the people that are really excited about a particular innovative project you have whatever it is but they're not going to get excited about stuff they don't know about and you can't rely on just the importance of the institution alone to get that information out there. Uh, so, so that's just a kind of a, a background as to, to how I've tried to set up my my own life. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't come from just this, this sense of like obligation to do community service. It's that if we care about this music and we want it to have a vital, vibrant life long-term, the best people to build an audience that cares about it are, are us. 
it is actually you and me going out there and and telling people showing them demonstrating whatever it is but it's personal and i don't think this is a new idea when you look at the the world of mozart haydn brahms beethoven there was a personal relationship between these composers the people that commissioned their work the people that listened to it on a regular basis in haydn's case most of the symphonies were written for the same people the same people at the same court of the the esterhaz family that would come over and over and over to see these works there was a real community there and we we often you know are 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 kind of plagued by this sense of just the austerity of the institution well there was no vienna philharmonic in haydn's time that was a later invention like when Bach was making music it was very much personally oriented it was about writing music for specific people playing it for specific people and doing that on a regular basis and for me that's the definition of a healthy musical culture you know who's playing the people who are playing know who they're playing for the people that are being played for know who's playing and vice versa back and forth back and forth it's a virtuous cycle uh, and I feel like then every level of community engagement comes from that. That's where you, you're going into a school, doing a project with with young uh, rappers, you're doing a project with young composers, do, uh, doing a project that brings, you know, the orchestra on a regular basis to a neighborhood that's totally disconnected from downtown. All that stuff starts feeding into the bigger picture of why we exist in the first place. So it's not terribly specific, but it but it kind of that's the philosophical framework. I think that's such a refreshing thing to hear and especially from someone like yourself and you know here in Kansas City I, I think uh, man I've been here for five years now I remember moving down here and and you know yes it's a big city but it's got such a tight-knit and and kind of you know small town feel and that community engagement is just so important and and you know interacting with those around us just is better for for everyone for us on stage as musicians for those sitting in the audience and you know i think i think a lot of orchestras are starting to see that and starting to recognize the value in that and and i think a lot you know has changed especially recently i mean two years ago you came on the podcast and and you know in kind of the midst of the pandemic and and the the tragic murders of brianna taylor and george floyd and 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 everything and and you know those kind of situations those world events kind of started to you know accelerate some trends that we were seeing within orchestras and in the last couple of years a lot has changed from what we were doing pre-pandemic and i'm just curious to know from your perspective what things have have stuck and and you know what what things still need to happen what things are happening that are good um we're trying to make some positive light of some pretty terrible events. And, and you know, I, I think it would be nice if we could, <laughs> you know, see some positive progress from that. So what, what's your, I mean, what's your, your take on all of that and where's everything going and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, Kansas City is such a, an interesting place. Um, this, this will kind of dovetail into to an answer, but, uh, you know, Kansas City is a great example of a place that I think a lot of Americans don't um, think about enough. This is such an impressive city where clearly there's a ton of energy, whatever the the, the urban development principles and, and plan that they've enacted here is it, whatever it is, it's working. Um, the city is growing. It feels energized. Uh, you have institutions like the orchestra that are in one of the best halls in the world playing so well uh and i think that 
a lot of times in in, in the United States, our, our institutions were locked into place a long time ago, and there isn't a sense of mobility amongst the institutions. Like, are, we still have this same hardened idea of what the great orchestras or the great museums or the great this or that might be. They're, they're really locked in. Um, and unlike sports, we don't have a chance to, you know, contest that every single year. And it's not really a competition in the end, but it is very frustrating as a person who moved from my native California to Kentucky um, to then recognize the stereotypes and the, the ideas that people have about so much of the country that and they're so far off. They, they, they these, these people are missing out on the vibrancy of America um, because they are stuck in a very, very narrow idea of what America actually is. And they're, they're often not then experiencing um, the full breadth of, of our culture and not seeing places that are, that are really demonstrating what flourishing looks like. And I think Kansas City is a great example of that, by the way. Um, but it does mean that places like Kansas City and, and Louisville don't get a pass um, to just play concerts the way um, maybe the New York Philharmonic or the Philadelphia Orchestra just on name alone can have more regular concerts because of either the size of the city, the amount of tourists in the city, or that the, the name recognition, just a kind of brand, um, gives a certain cover. But that's a dangerous thing. I'm actually glad that in Louisville, for instance, we don't have that because it, it means that innovation and creativity are the things that have to drive us, not just the brand. The brand should come from the creativity, but it doesn't come from some sense of just like obligation to go. It comes from if we're doing compelling and interesting work. Uh, and I think that that, getting back to your, your question, is where the future of orchestras needs to be. Um, rather than saying, okay, here's the schedule that we've had for the last 50 years since we started playing the same basic plot of classical concerts, pops concerts, a few education concerts, we need to start saying, with the talents that we have, we've got however many musicians, 60 musicians to 100 musicians in most full-time professional orchestras. But the talents that we have, with the, the skill sets, the capabilities, the, the personalities that we have, with the, the halls that we have, with the, um, the, the whatever our institution brings to the table, we have that. Here, then we have a problem. So we have the, the we have the resource of the problem. The problem are the issues that cities are dealing with. Where are the gaps? Where are the holes? Where are the things that aren't being addressed? And without having you know a kind of grandiose vision of what we do, we say, how do we match our resources and our skills to the things that the society actually needs? Because the society is spending X number of millions of dollars on our institutions a year, and I want to make sure when history decides to to write a survey of what we all accomplished that they say that the, that the world of orchestras uh was was a compelling and important part of 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 urban society in america in the 21st century i want them to look at us that way and say that they were participants in the, the the modern culture of of our cities of our neighborhoods of our communities that they helped look at the gaps the divides the issues where people don't feel connected the the, the disintegration in society and they made serious efforts honest efforts to address those and that doesn't mean doing something trite or silly you know what i mean like i want to get away from that this isn't doing one project and everybody pats themselves on the back and say look look we played one piece by a composer from a community that was historically underrepresented and now we did a good job no it's it's a deeper commitment to saying the fractures 
um and and again that word disintegration that's what music addresses that's why we had it in the first place we invented musical art because human beings are disintegrated and fractured from each other so we invented something that that, that was so deeply shared and connected to something uh, underneath that the, the surface of our humanity that it made us feel um like we could find unity and communion so that's the the, the heart of what i think we can be doing um the problem is it's really hard to do that when we say let's fit it in to the same model every single year um and then those things don't always then find uh compatibility uh so there are a lot of things that are going well i will say that we have to acknowledge i i remember once i went to a league of american orchestras conference and it, it, it was really interesting because I felt like nobody took the time to actually acknowledge the many things that had actually worked in the 20 years since a lot of the things that they were talking about had first been addressed. I felt like they needed to say, hey, let's actually take stock and, and, and you know, commemorate and, and appreciate the things that are going well. So we do have to acknowledge that. The last couple of years have seen a tremendous interest in, in uh, you know, commissions and projects from people that, that wouldn't have been involved before. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of times they're squeezed into a pretty narrow band uh, of, of of the the output of these institutions and they're not getting the full weight of of what our our creative resources might be i'll tell you an example of what we tried to do in louisville um th this is one of many of our big pillar things that have come out of the last couple of years but one of them is called the creators core uh and that is a program where we hired three full-time composers to work for the orchestra um in, we kind of abandoned the model of of random commissions and said we want we want full-time composers like Kapellmeisters for the city. And we brought them in. They are on staff. They get their benefits and salary from the orchestra. They are not paid per commission. They are paid a, a yearly salary to do whatever musical work um, they can for the town. Uh, and there are some you know, minimum expectations. This is the first year of it. All three have gone so far above and beyond writing way more music, the amount of music they are outputting. And we have a dedicated staff member for those three that just are you know, trying to like produce their stuff. I go on and on about this project, but the 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 impact that that has had on the institution the way people see new music in the community um because they have to live there too by the way that's an important part of it is it's been like a absolute like quantum leap of for, for us um and it's a great example of if you want again a healthy musical culture it's got to be connected to the people I, themselves i would love for you to expand on this a little bit actually because you know in your last conversation um with jason uh, and I'll have to paraphrase because my memory from two years ago is not perfect. But but you said something uh, about new music, which was basically that, you know, if we want people's appreciation for music to evolve, we have to write and perform new music. We can't only perform, you know, just the oldies and, and goodies ad infinitum. And I think that's really true. And I think it's, it's something that, um, you know, every orchestra has been wrestling with for a long time uh, in one way or another. But but this uh, this model that you've created is is really really interesting, and it's a totally uh, new way, as far as I'm aware, of of creating new works. Because you know, for for the benefit of our listeners, usually the way new works come into being is an orchestra or an individual musician uh, or a consortium of organizations. You know, pool together uh, resources, principally money, to pay a conductor to a uh, composer. I mean, to to write. An individual piece. And so, you know, the repertoire expands one of these projects at a time. And it's really challenging, of course, 
to raise the funds and to you know hire the composer to write just one piece. So so what you're talking about, you know, having the capacity to write as many as much music as these composers you know can imagine in a period of time. Um, and for them to have the freedom to do that is really, really extraordinary. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about about what they've been creating, whether it's for the orchestra, for his chamber music, solo pieces, uh, you know, if it if it um, kind of goes outside the box as far as collaborations, you know, who uh, who is this music written for in terms of who, who's going to play it, who's going to hear it, because it, it, it's such an interesting concept. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's It's kind of shocking how this has not been done like it really hasn't been done since the era when you know individual aristocratic families hired their court composer um and it's actually i i think that was a great model by the way except for the whole aristocratic part you know i mean if they were hiring true town composers that would have been better but of course whatever that was 400 years ago um they weren't thinking like that but but there 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 really was something compelling about this idea that okay maybe a more egalitarian example is bach i mean just imagine if you were a parishioner at the thomas kirka and you went to go hear new cantatas, new masses by by Bach, new uh, passions like on on occasion. Like, just imagine the the experience that you would have uh, as as a regular person attending church with that kind of talent outputting uh, new work on a regular basis. And I I started thinking a lot about this because I think in in, in our world, our classical world, so to speak, we we often aren't honest with ourselves. The most famous of our composers and instrumentalists are not famous people go talk to go walk around kansas city go walk around louisville and start talking to them about you know steve reich and john adams and how excited they would be if we did a brand new uh you know john adams piece by the way one of my favorite composers of course i'm sure all of ours like we, we all know but nobody in louisville knows him nobody knows anybody except yo-yo ma He's the only one they've 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 heard of, and that's that. And I'm not insulting it, but that's fine. I mean, how many poets do, do random people know? You know, I I don't know any. You know, whatever. We we know the people that we know. I don't know the people uh, on the, the on the royals. Like I don't know that there are people that that, that know that. Um, I'm not one of them. It's just kind of reversed. The polarities are reversed in our in our world. So I thought to myself. Healthy musical culture means people writing new music that's not just done out of obligation, it's done because the public demands it. People need to be so excited that this thing is happening because they know that they need to be sitting in that chair in the audience. It's the only way to hear this amazing thing that's been created for them. So how do you get them to be excited about something like that? The answer suddenly appeared by having those composers as part of the community. They're, the community knows who they are. They get to know them as people. They get to see them regularly. They're on TV all the time promoting this stuff. They're doing projects that involve tons of musicians. They're doing projects that involve the community in creative ways. Those people will wanna see the premiere of their new big orchestral piece. You connect the dots because you're not gonna build it. The most famous composers, again, are brands known only to us. We, we have to get out of this pyramid scheme. You know, we've got, we've got to get out of the pyramid scheme. And and, and so this was one of the, the, the ideas that we have. We said, okay, come come to Louisville. We're going to give you housing. We're going to give you a salary that's in line with what our principal musicians make. And we're going to give you benefits. Um, it's It will start with as a, as a one-year opportunity. Uh, you must live there full-time. You can be released for, you know, other projects, of course. But but you, you, your primary residence needs to be the house that we're giving you. And then... We said the minimum kind of requirements, although you're a staff member, so you're, you'll be part of things on a regular basis. The minimum requirements are a big orchestral piece uh, at some point during the main season, 
a concert uh, in our Music Without Borders series. That's our free concert series. It, it, it takes our, our the orchestra to lots of different neighborhoods that you'll kind of host and you'll have your music, whatever you want to, to do on that program. And then at least one education or community project. And that could really be whatever, you, whatever you're excited about. It could be another piece. It could be a piece for kids. It could be a piece for the community, whatever it is. Um, you, you decide, you tell us what you want to do. You could create a new, a new program um, that, that, that's somehow uh, available in, in, in classrooms, whatever you want to do totally your call um those are the minimum requirements most of them have done a second or third project on top they're now involved in our kentucky tour which is another thing if we you know we could talk on and on and on i could go on and on about this stuff but anyway they're all involved in the kentucky tour they're all involved in our, our education concerts on top of that uh and the number of individual things they're just doing as musicians throughout the community is is staggering like it's and, and it's so it's so crazy to watch the relationships being built i'll give you an example one of one of the uh, uh composers because this is not for students this is for serious professional composers of any background, but this is not meant as a student fellowship. Um, Lisa Bialava is uh, an amazing composer, has had a, a bunch of um, you know major records by Boston Modern Orchestra Project, things like that, big commissions at Carnegie Hall. So she came to, to, to be a part of the program. And uh, one of the projects she's working on right now is called the Louisville Broadcast. It's taking place on this bridge that spans Indiana and Kentucky and involves 700 musicians from the community, community choirs, school music groups, the orchestra, the community orchestras, they're all participating in this thing that people will get to experience as they're walking through it. Uh, that's an example of her project. One of our composers right now is working on a thing. So when we go on tour to central Kentucky, uh, melodies and tunes that have been written by people from each of the towns that we're visiting are being woven into a piece that he's composing. So we're integrating all, all, all of this stuff. In addition, they have two full weeks of readings that are devoted just to them. It's their time to do whatever they want. And there's no, there's no expectation at the end of those weeks. There's no concert that we have to do. So we spent one service uh, with one of the, the the composers just working on some techniques for uh, a piece that she was writing for us. But but it wasn't like we were reading down the piece. We were practicing like C major chords, seeing if if um, we like played it out of tune with ourselves. Like what does that sound like? And imagine then after two weeks of workshopping, then you get to the piece that's on the program and everybody knows the style. They know the language. They know the piece itself. They've seen it developed. It means that not only is the orchestra able to play this stuff at a really high level, like they are playing their pieces the way they also would play Beethoven and Brahms with that level of command. There's no like scrambling at the last minute. We're playing it with real, you know, um, assurance. But also that amount of time means that the composers are thinking of new things to write for the orchestra as an instrument, because normally you get one rehearsal on the dress rehearsal for your new piece of music, maybe a little bit more. How much can you really expand the genre in that time? Well, with this reading time, the kind of things they're they're cooking up, it, it wasn't something that we expected. It's just because they recognize they have that they have the, the 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 research time. They've got the laboratory booked. They're able to invent all kinds of wacky ideas. Well, one of the pieces that that, that um, T.J. Cole wrote is one of our, our wonderful composers. Is this synthesizer concerto? But the orchestra is choreographed somewhat. There are all kinds of things they have to do, including this one moment where they they put their instruments down, get up, position themselves throughout the stage, and take these whirlies and start whirling and and, 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 and like it. it interacts with the synthesizer which is making these wind noises and they sit back down and then start singing all together but we could do it because we had the time we gave them the time to build it sorry i could i could go on and on about this i get so excited like the kind of things they're cooking because it's like wow the orchestra is a living breathing instrument that is growing um and i'm so used to saying no we've got to fit into 
the little box and that's the only thing um that's gonna that's gonna work and also it's just amazing in louisville we've got three full-time composers and the fact is they're all staying like even after the program ends they're all gonna stay in louisville at least another year even with a crop of three so that's six composers living in louisville at this rate there'll be hundreds like like you know if we if we keep doubling and that's my dream that's what i want that's you know getting back to the question earlier that's when i go back to the community and say hey we built a vibrant neighborhood with all these composers and creatives that have flocked here now they're just moving not even to be a part of the program because artists like to live together that's that's my dream for this maybe it'll take 20 years but if i if i'm going to try and contribute to the, the health of the city then it needs to be stuff like that and it's really fun for for everybody including the musicians have really gotten a kick out of this it's it's so it's just it's a beautiful thing to have that relationship uh, within the organization well, i i love that and i can i can certainly say for myself and i i know um joe and uh jessica uh, you should you should comment on this as well i mean one of the most frustrating things is just what you said we you know we play a, a piece by a composer who is who is new to us and there's no context you know, of, of having played that, that composer's other music, understanding their language and their voice. And for our audience too, uh, they hear a piece, a composer one time, once we at least have the benefit of rehearsing it a little bit through the week, they hear a piece once and maybe never again, maybe they never hear that composer again. So it's hard to get an understanding of, of, of new languages, of new voices, of, of new sounds. I don't know. I mean, what, what do you guys how do you guys feel about that do you also feel that frustration sometimes well yes and i i was you sort of touched on the other thing that i think is a factor sometimes is that the process and the process that teddy's describing of working with a composer is an extension of this but even without that in the orchestra the process of rehearsing a composer's music gives us familiarity with it that the audience may not have um after listening to something only once. So I do think it's not even really so much that we know it better, but that we that the language that the composer is using is something that becomes more familiar to us, which is, I don't know, that's a subtle difference. But I think that's an advantage that we have as performers that the audience doesn't get. So, and then tell you what you described with the orchestra working in that kind of extended way with the composer is, is even more of that, right? You get that extended familiarity with doing things in a certain way or doing things in a new way or you know stretching out a little bit without without risk so yeah that's it's really cool it's a cool project yeah I, I think we we tend to do a pretty good amount of you know or we at least try to include a, a good amount of um you know new works um you know every concert cycle here which is i think pretty unique and 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 nice to do and um and yeah i i, I think yeah for for the audience especially too whenever we have the composer here in town which which sometimes happens and and they're able to get up on stage and and explain a little bit about the work or you know just kind of um give a little bit more context or 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 that sort of thing it it's just it's such a different experience as the listener we do get a little bit more of that as the performers just because we're we're actually working with the with the piece and we're figuring out the nuances and 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 you know what the composer intended and I, there's been several parts uh or several times you know like this season alone where we've played something new and you know the first reading uh you're if the composer's not able to to you know convey what they mean you're kind of you're kind of left scratching your head saying like okay well hmm, i wonder why they asked me to do this in my part and then it's funny by the end of the concert cycle or, or by the time you get to the performance it's like 
oh, I get it now. Like, that's why the composer wanted me to do, you know, this certain technique or this certain thing. And um, yeah, I just think that's so interesting. And, and the, the unique situation where you have that collaboration with the composer there all the time seems like it's, it's just, like you said, you can play that kind of, you know, the, the new music as well as we could do Beethoven or, you know, Brahms or whatever, because, you know, we know that so well. And if we can know the new composer and what they're intending, then, yeah, I mean, I, I think that creates such a much more compelling performance of the work. Absolutely. Well, Teddy, this has been such a phenomenal conversation, and uh, I would love for the four of us to sit here uh, for a couple more hours uh, and talk about new music, talk about old music, talk about new ways of playing old music, and so forth. But um, as a as an experienced uh, guest on our podcast, you know that we have a little bit of official business to attend to as we wrap up. Uh, it's very important. It was in your contract. I'm sure you read it. That's the fine print. Uh, you signed off on it or somebody did. So, you know, jokes on you. First of all, our listeners know that we we always ask our guests uh, two very important questions, and and Teddy, you've you've answered these questions before. The first one is uh, what what is your favorite beverage of choice, and the second the second question is uh, if you were in a in a bar or some other establishment with Beethoven, what might you ask Beethoven? And our um, our very uh, studious and diligent and hardworking producer, Tim, has uh, dug into the archives to refresh my memory and perhaps yours of your answer to these questions from two years ago. And and what I want to do today is give you uh, an opportunity, if you so wish, to either double down on your answers, to amend them or uh, or modify them or change them in any particular way. But last last time uh, when we asked you this, or when, really when Jason asked you this, uh, you said that your your favorite beverage would be uh, a local Louisville. Uh, sorry, lo, lo, how do you all say it there? Lo, Louisville, Louisville, Louisville. Louisville yeah. Right? Louisville. You got to swallow, yeah. You got to swallow some vowels. Um, <laughs> he, but you said uh, that you would enjoy a local Louisville uh, rare release bourbon, and uh, you also said that you wouldn't ask anything uh, of Beethoven, as you wouldn't want to ruin your perception of who he is or was. So, uh, do you do you stand by these answers? Are these are these true and authentic uh, answers uh, for yourself now, two years uh, more experienced and wise? It's definitely true in that that does sound like something I would say. Um, <laughs> is it true in that those are the best answers? Okay, the whiskey one is for sure, because uh, I don't have a job without the bourbon industry. Let's put it like that. In fact, I don't have a job without a very specific part of the bourbon industry, and that's the Brown Foreman company. That you know, Brown Foreman is is the one that makes uh, Woodford Reserve and Jack Daniels and Finlandia vodka, a lot of the, the biggest spirits brands, um, and they're very very philanthropic, especially with the orchestra and the arts. Um, and so I'm I'm attached, and I've, I also grew you know grew into becoming a whiskey drinker. So that has not changed. I think some of the rare release ones. Um, I mean, like if you can get your hands on the uh, uh, Old Forester birthday bourbon, which is really hard to to find, um, the uh, any any um, purple uh, labeled uh, Willet rare release bourbon, not the pot still ones. Those are fine; they're good, they're great. But but a rare release Willet, just you know, go for it. 
Um, the, you know, the Eagle rare, not the standard one that you get, but the 17 year, that kind of stuff. It's so hard to find. Some of it is overhyped, but a lot of the good stuff, George T stag, like in general is just ridiculously great. Um, so no, no changes there. The Beethoven question though. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's actually not a bad answer because I don't know that one question would, would be enough to feel satisfied after that. And I don't know that there's any one thing that he could say that, that you, people have a tendency to answer things, especially when they don't know each other in a way that skews your, your view. I mean, I think the first thing that I usually say to somebody is pretty weird and they think I'm odd. And then I'd have to go the whole rest of my life thinking, oh man, Beethoven was one of these things, weird, odd, mean. But I think it would be the 10th question that maybe I could get to the, the heart of what's going on. I mean, now that we know is that 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 whole story about his hair too. The hair is. I, I read this really article uh, only because I hadn't heard about it, and then actually Jessica pointed out to me in my uh, pre-podcast uh, process. The hair is the hair is fascinating. Everyone should look up what we're talking about. <laughs> I could ask him because you didn't say that I couldn't ask for anything. Uh, you just said, "What would you ask him?" So I said, "Mr. Beethoven, could I have?" some of your hair there you go that's maybe that's what i would ask him it's not a it's a it's a request maybe like a scraping from the inside of his cheek or something <laughs> and like a tooth. i want it i would like i would like some some you know physiological evidence that's what i want i actually don't want information i want a tooth a hair and some skin shavings is that what we're asking for <laughs> something like disgusting. that disgusting i think that's what i would in like a very unexpected direction <laughs> <laughs> This this took a turn, didn't it? Well, this, yeah, this, okay. did. <laughs> Does that get the award for for yes, most unusual yes. you answer have, to you the question? You have achieved. We have Good. never uh, had anyone suggest uh, uh, actual uh, human tissue contributions <laughs> from Beethoven <laughs> to uh, determine anything about his genome. No, or it's, it's a question. It's absolutely a question. It would also be valuable. A and it would be valuable yeah. and perhaps answer some <laughs> lingering uh, <laughs> questions about his health and his uh, his uh, heritage and, and all of that. Well, um, uh, uh, skin and hair samples notwithstanding, we have one other little bit of business uh, to cover as we wrap up. Um, which is that we often like to try to recommend a little bit of uh, listening for our listeners. And since we've had uh, such a great conversation today about, about music uh, and its, its uh, impact and its ability to uh, communicate to people, uh, we thought we would have a little segment where we each recommend some listening that represents interesting collaborations because um, you talked more about this, uh, as I said the last time. One of the one of the most um, powerful things I think in music is to uh, connect music that comes from different cultures, different traditions, uh, and and not just say that music is universal, but to actually prove it by uh, by by doing it uh, together uh, in in new ways. And so. Um, hopefully this listening list will inspire you to go out and listen to some music that really combines uh, artists and styles and maybe even periods of music uh, in new ways that uh, will make you think about what is familiar and what is unfamiliar to you uh, when you're listening to music. So uh, Teddy, you being the guest of honor, of course, I uh, bestow upon you the uh, opportunity to kick us off. 
So this is an, an album. Is that what we're, we're recommending? Could be an album, could be a piece, could be a single note, whatever, whatever is interesting to you. Hmm. Okay, well, I'll tell you, but it needs to be one thing. I will allow you to name two or three things. <laughs> okay, because, okay I'll, I'll, I'll recap. Because I do think it's such a spectacular album, just to, to reiterate um, the Ataka Quartet's album, Orange. It's all Caroline's music. I really think that's a landmark record. I, I think it's it's very special music making and it's very special music. And um, if, if there's anything that should compel people to to understand the the landscape and the horizons of music um, stretching out hundreds of years, it feels like she's conjuring up everything from Renaissance uh, polyphony to Beethoven to Shostakovich to her own mind. Um, I think that's that's pretty spectacular. But I'll also tell you um, the the uh, a revelation that I had. I was listening again to Wynn Marsalis's early albums, and like he's such an establishment name that you often forget how outrageously like just cutting edge, knock your softs off, virtuosic, brilliant, uh, just unheard of kind of um, jazz chops he he had. Uh, and the first couple of albums, uh, including Think of One and his and his initial self titled one. They actually like stopped me. I was I was kind of listening with headphones. I just had to stop it. Like I, oh my god, this is like some of the finest jazz music making I've I've ever heard. And a lot of people like they know Wynn Marsalis, but they haven't really listened to the early albums. And and um, that's something that I've just I've come to in the last couple of weeks, and hope that people will enjoy. It. Joe, you're on deck. Me next. Oh man, I was hoping I might be last. Okay, well. Uh, I, I guess I kind of have a couple, and one of them ties kind of into to yours, Teddy. Um, you know, there's uh, kind of in that jazz vein, uh, two names that, that kind of came together that were actually kind of like a, a realization in, in my musical career, uh, were some of the albums of, of Miles Davis's with Gil Evans' arrangements. And there, there's this one specific album where it's, you know, full, basically full orchestra. And believe it or not, there's a tuba in the orchestra. And, uh, you know, as a tuba player, like, we don't do a ton of jazz because usually it's, you know, it's, it's the bass that's doing it. So, so to me, you know, it was always kind of this, like, I, I, I really have a passion for, for jazz and, and love the music, but it was kind of this thing that I didn't get to really do until I heard this album. Uh, and I just think it's kind of a, it's not really an interesting or out there collaboration, but it's kind of these two mega names coming together and, you know, creating something that's just like, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of charts on those, on those albums that are just insane. I mean, it's, and you know, some of them are, are like off the wall, very experimental things. And then some of them are just, you know, really fine arrangements of, of tunes that, that have been around for, for a long time. And, and I just think that that's, that's still something that's been, uh, that sticks in my mind a lot. Um, and the last, uh, I guess this is kind of a, a, a music slash theater slash, uh, I don't know what you call it, I guess, kind of, kind of thing. Um, there's this, and I guess this is a, this is also a visual along with listening. So I hope that's okay. Uh, if you, you can go to YouTube and find this group, called Minozil Brass, M-N-O-Z-I-L. And it's this, this six-part six uh, band, brass band, 
that have made brass music or classical music ex- like very extremely accessible uh, to to the audience. I mean, these these people like they sell out wherever they go. They were here a couple of years ago, I think. And um, yeah, I won't I won't go into too much detail because you just got to see it. They're hilarious. It's comedy. It's theater, and it's you know music and it's it's just a super fun time so i would i would uh highly recommend going to youtube and checking out one of their videos because it's you know they do everything from bohemian rhapsody to uh you know william tell and it's just and and not to mention that they're just wickedly insane on their instruments i mean some of the techniques they can do is just like out of this world um oh tie that back to the planets this week but um yeah yeah check them out because it's it's pretty cool way to close the circle joe excellent Excellent. Yeah, you like uh, that? Yeah, I did like that. That was a nice move, <laughs> Jessica. Yeah, that um, I, I, that Minozel brass um, stuff is really fun. So I was going to say you I probably know that from Brian. I, yeah, I do. I I have have seen I think at least Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. on YouTube. So uh, that's worth that's worth your time. And there's a rabbit hole. And then um, I didn't follow the instructions, Mike. It's not required. Um, but this is not a this is not a collaborative project necessarily although they do a ton of collaboration with other musicians but i do want to encourage people to check out um room full of teeth which is the vocal group that teddy mentioned at the beginning of the episode that carolyn shaw is in um and they do it's fairly spectacular um i'm not a singer and i know nothing about vocal technique and the things that they can do are wild and impressive um and gorgeous so i think that's uh, worth everybody's time i i think that's a perfect answer and um and Teddy, you you and I again must have been on the same wavelength at some point in time uh, yesterday, uh, because I I also uh, headed in the direction of Wynton Marsalis as I was combing the internet uh, for interesting music to suggest, and I found this uh, album of his that I was previously unaware of. Uh, it's this incredible recording with uh, Nicola Benedetti who plays uh, his violin concerto. Wynton Marsalis wrote a violin concerto uh, and also some solo violin music. It is in every possible way, um, you know, the voice of Wynton Marsalis. I mean, it's it's uh, obviously got ja- a lot of jazz influence, uh, a lot of classical influence. I mean, I first came to know Wynton Marsalis hearing, you know, his recording of the Haydn Trumpet Concerto on NPR classical radio. So it was only when I got older and a little more sophisticated, I understood him to be uh, an incredible jazz artist as well. And I think that that fusion of traditions within his own playing and uh, uh, the way he writes for, uh, it's the Philadelphia Orchestra on this recording, um, is just incredible and, and totally worth a listen. Um, well, I want to thank uh, Teddy again so much uh, for having this wonderful conversation with us. And uh, of course, to my colleagues, Jessica and Joe, for being fabulous uh, guest hosts today and uh, participating in this awesome, awesome conversation. So thank you so much to all of you. And Teddy, it's been amazing to have you here this week. I hope you'll come back and visit us uh, many, many more times in the future. Well, it's, it's such a pleasure to be on the podcast twice now. 
uh, and and to be with the orchestra. This, I mean, I I don't think I need to tell all of you um, who are listening to this podcast because you probably know this already. But you really have one of the best orchestras here. The the quality of player and the quality of people, the attitude uh, is is just so positive, and and it's great great music making. I think people in Kansas City know how lucky they are. Um, so thank you very much for having me and and for getting to the podcast again. I'll. I'll Hope I get to do it a third time. Maybe I'll get the record. You're booked. (laughs) (laughs) Consider it done. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you all. Next time on the podcast, it's your favorite sign of spring, the return of Stern. That's right. Music director Michael Stern returns to the podcast to discuss his thrilling and celebratory final season with the Kansas City Symphony. Beginning next fall, we'll be seeing much more of Michael as we celebrate his nearly two-decade-long tenure and everything that we have accomplished together. But you don't have to wait until next fall to hear the Kansas City Symphony with Michael Stern. He is back April 21st through 23rd with a concert for the H's. Yes, that's H as in Hindemith, Haydn, and Holst, featuring mezzo-soprano Sasha Cook and baritone Scott Hendricks. Until then, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and visit kcsymphony.org for tickets.